Let's pray, and we want to get into the word of the Lord this morning. Father, we're thankful that we are not just a little church in a little remote, remote corner of the world, but we are your church, and there is but one church, and we are privileged to be a part of that. Uh, those people who are called by your name, uh, Lord, who are rescued only by the blood of Jesus. And, uh, and God, we are just privileged this morning to join voices with uh, all those who are truly your church and those who are in heaven surrounding your throne to praise you, a good and glorious God who is worthy not only of the praises that we can muster, but much more. And so, Lord, this morning we just pause and we remember whose presence we're in. And we long to know you better, and we, to that end, we come to your word, that we might know you from your revelation of yourself. So open our eyes to see and our hearts to receive what you would have for us, and we ask that your spirit would have his way with us. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. If you'll open your Bibles to Daniel chapter 9, uh, this morning we're going to wrap up our study on sort of the person uh, of Daniel and, uh, and of his writings, and that might be kind of a fearful endeavor for some of you when you consider that we have chapters 8 through 12 left, right? So you, we could be here a while. Uh, as I told you at the beginning of the series, though, we're not going to look at every single verse in the passage of, or in, in the book as a whole. We're going to treat this more as a biographical look at, at, uh, at Daniel, so there's a little bit of comfort for those of you who are terrified. Um, and, and in particular, chapters 8 through 12 are, uh, basically what they do is they add a lot of detail to the structure or the skeletal structure that we find in the vision in chapter 7. And so I'm not going to be going all the way through 8 through 12 and all the details therein. Uh, I, I would even go to what Daniel says himself of some of these visions. In chapter 8, verse 27, he says that his vision was beyond understanding, <laughs> And I'm going to take Daniel at his word here a little bit and say, yeah, this one, uh, this eludes me. Difficult to preach apocalyptic literature. What we've seen in chapter 7 really sets up the end of the book, and we're not going to go through all of the minutiae of it. You get the, the trajectory of things. But I want to close our study in the book in chapter 9 and the prayer uh, that we find there uh, in Daniel, with Daniel. We get, a, I think, a real unique privilege to look at the prayer life of this man whose life was so shaped by prayer. Um, Daniel's custom, as you'll remember, was to pray three times a day. And this was not only before, but even after the threat upon his very life for having done so. And so prayer really marked Daniel's life and shaped his life. And so he is a wonderful example uh, to look at when we are considering prayer. Our title this morning is How to Pray Like a Boss. And uh, Daniel does that, so we're going to look to his example. So let me ask you a question. What was your best prayer? What was your best prayer? As you look back over the story of your life, in different seasons with the Lord and occasions of coming to him in prayer, what was your best prayer? And the second question goes along with it, which is, and what made it? The best prayer. What criteria would you look at to even make that determination? Let me give you some suggestions. Was it the way that you felt? Maybe you were 
in prayer and you were just overwhelmed with the presence of God and you had this assurance and this peace. And so maybe your best prayer, you, you would characterize it in such a way because of the way that you felt. Or was it the length of time? Uh, maybe this was one of those occasions where you were able to set aside a huge chunk of time and you were able to pray in a concerted way for even maybe for hours. Uh, or maybe it was just dripping with theological truth. You know, it was just precise from beginning to end. You just, you did it all the way right, like a perfect recipe. Uh, maybe it was just a really honest, wild sort of a rant to the Lord. And you took your fears and your concerns and whatever, and you really entrusted it to him. Uh, maybe you were praying through the scripture, and you were using the precedent of someone else's prayer. Maybe a psalm sort of carried you along, and you found comfort and peace in doing that. Uh, or maybe you received all of the requests that you had asked for, and so that prayer was especially good, much the way you might determine if Christmas was good or not. Did you get everything on your list? So I'll ask the question again, what was your best prayer? And what criteria would you even use to go about making that determination? I think as I considered this question, I think my best prayer, or at least the one that came to mind when I was thinking about this, uh, I was a senior in college at Biola, and I had applied for a job, a youth ministry position at Westside Baptist Church in Yakima, Washington, and uh, I had submitted my resume and application. I had gone through the interview process over, over distance, and, uh, and I got a phone call. Actually, it woke me up from a nap, and uh, John Schubert gave me a phone call to let me know that I didn't get the job, and those are brutal calls, right? And I remember uh, kind of a little bit in a good nap stupor, not really being able to make sense of everything, and I had hung up the phone, and I sat there kind of processing and trying to shake out the cobwebs, and so a couple hours later, I had to call him back and say, listen, I, I got word. Yeah, I understand. I didn't get the job. Um, I wasn't in the best state of mind. Can you help me understand? So we talked it through a little bit. And I remember hanging up the phone. And my best prayer came shortly after. Uh, and I, I honestly remember saying, Lord, I'm disappointed. It's not what I wanted. But I just want to serve you. And I want to love kids. And so wherever you take me, I'm happy to go. And I meant it. And so it wasn't just the words. It was that really was what was in my heart. And it came out in a very short and succinct way. And um, I hope you won't think badly of me. I, I was proud of that prayer. Okay. I felt good about that. Um, a couple days later, I got a phone call from my roommate who said, hey, there's somebody from Washington State on the phone from a church and they wanted to talk to you. So I called back and it happened to be the same church and they said uh, actually we would like to offer you a different position here and uh, to but to also a position working with our youth would you be interested in that and I'll be honest with you I really think that the Lord honored my heart in that moment because I really was open-handed and had surrendered something that I truly wanted but had said okay Lord you know what do you want for me and um, now I will also say that uh, that position they offered me was with junior high ministry, so it could just be that God was messing with me too. <laughs> so <I'd, laughs> um, Certainly he was um, shaping me and uh, forming me. Um, and I also don't mean to say that by that incident I've got prayer down and that it's been this you know, unbroken spiral of perfection since. I could tell you stories 10 to 1 <laughs> 
of where I got prayer bad, where I got it wrong. And I will tell you one of them. Uh, This was back in 2008. In fact, I was getting ready to leave for Ethiopia on a missions trip. And we were trying to purchase a home. And there was this particular home that we were interested in. It was a construction repo. And, uh, and I used to, this is going to make you laugh. Here's a little, if you, if, you, if you know me, you know I would do this kind of thing. If you don't know me, here you go. This is Eric. I would get up early and make a thermos of coffee. And I would drive over to this construction repo and sit in the parking lot and pray for it. <laughs> I would sit out in the parking lot and pray for this thing and drink my coffee and just stay there and linger and continue to, to pray for this thing. And I would tell you that in that instance, I don't think that was my best um, posture in prayer. I think I was praying more like a stalker there, you know. <laughs> and I think in a sense, if you sort of dissect it, you would see it. what I was trying to do was to persuade God to do what I wanted, what I thought was best as I saw it instead of having an open-hearted, open-handed posture for what he wanted for me. So with these stories, these thoughts, I come back to our question, how do we pray well? How do we pray in a way that pleases our Lord, or as I phrase it in the title, how do we pray like a boss? As Daniel is a good example, let's see what he has to tell us. Daniel 9.1. In the first year of Darius, son of Xerxes, a Mede by descent, who was made ruler over the Babylonian kingdom. In the first year of his reign, I, Daniel, understood from the scriptures according to the word of the Lord given to Jeremiah the prophet that the desolation of Jerusalem would last 70 years. So I turned to the Lord God and pleaded with him in prayer and petition and fasting and in sackcloth and ashes. All right, we're going to stop right there. First of all, hopefully you remember, we looked, actually it was back at Father's Day and graduation time, we looked at... This particular prophecy by Jeremiah in chapter 29, which is often used, right? I know the plans I have for you, plans to prosper you and not to harm you. And we looked at it in context, and we looked at the bigger picture of what God was telling his Judean family here that was about ready to go into exile. And we saw the whole thing. And one of the cautions that we saw there was that they were going into this place, into Babylonian exile, and that they were to live there in a winsome way. They were to build homes and plant gardens and to be for the peace and prosperity of the city, even their captors. And that this particular time of discipline would last 70 years and then God would return them uh, to Jerusalem and to their land. And so that's what they were expecting. That was the word of the Lord that Daniel is referring to here. He's referring to that clear revelation of Jeremiah, and he's contemplating, hey, 70 years is about up. And so it takes him to prayer. And so the first point we should draw out from this is that this, if we want to pray well, if we want to pray in a way that pleases our Lord, we should know the word of God. If you want to grow stronger in your prayer life, grow in your knowledge of the word of the Lord. And understand this, the reason to know the word of the Lord better is not just so that we would have quotable passages just dripping out of our mouth, although there's nothing wrong with that. But the reason that we would know the word of the Lord is that we might know the Lord of the word. That we might know our God. He is saying, this is me. This is what I'm doing in this world with all of you. Know me. 
And so we want to spend time in the word of God so that we would know the nature of our God and that we would live in dynamic relationship with him. Jesus cautioned the religious leaders against their abuse of the word in John 5, 39, when he said, you search the scriptures intently because you think that in them you have eternal life. But what? But they speak of me. The scriptures were a means to an end, not the end of themselves as the religious leaders were treating them. The scriptures are given that we might know our God. They're the primary means by which he reveals himself to us, and that ought to have an impact on our prayers. And so when we know our God, not just through our private subjective experiences, which are faulty, but rather because we, are, we have been saturated with the true word of God, then we are more likely to pray in ways that are consistent with the nature of God and with things that are pleasing to him. We will be praying with the grain, as I've preached before. We will be praying consistently along the lines the Lord is already inclined to to act. I would tell you this. You show me somebody who is struggling in their prayer life, I will show you somebody who is struggling in their time in the word. The word drives us to prayer. Prayer is a response to what we find in the word. And so as we look at the first three chapters in Daniel here, or the first three verses in Daniel uh, chapter 9, we see that Daniel himself was a student of the word. He knew the words of the prophet Jeremiah, and it was those words that drove him to prayer. What's interesting to me Uh, is that it was Daniel's knowledge uh, of this revelation through the prophet Jeremiah that this time of discipline was only going to last 70 years. Uh, That's what drove him to prayer. And that's interesting to me because I think a lot of us would say, well, if I knew that God was going to do something, well then, why would I pray for it? Right? Why not just... Leave it in God's well and capable hands. Why does it need my prayer to carry it along? And I think what that sentiment shows us is an underdeveloped view of prayer. I think what it shows us is that our prayer has become merely an exercise whereby we're trying to convince God to do something that he doesn't seem inclined to do. Prayer becomes an argument or a method of persuasion where we're trying to coax something out of the reluctant hand of God. And we're missing, in that sense, the full-orbed nature of really what prayer is. I think we need to focus our attention back on the relational aspect of prayer. Not just the request side. They're both there. But I think if we fail in one, I think we fail in the relational side of simply being with God. We need to come to prayer knowing who He is from His Word, lingering in His presence, Allowing the revealed nature of God through his word to saturate us, to make an impression upon our mind, our thoughts, and our requests, and to then gently coax out of us the kinds of prayers that our Heavenly Father is already inclined to answer. I love what C.S. Lewis says, prayer doesn't change God, it changes me. Right? It changes me. I'm coming before the sovereign of the universe. I'm going to allow him to change me. 
And so I think were we to spend some more time in just recalling and reaffirming the power and the sovereignty of God to ourselves, we would ask more accurately and more confidently for what God is already inclined to do. And so my encouragement to you this morning is not just to pray more or pray harder, but rather pray better. Pray better by being saturated by the word of God that you might know your God and know what he wants you to be praying for. The second thing I think we see in this this section here is that we need to maintain the right posture in prayer. And so now we're going to look at Daniel's prayer and, and see how this takes shape. Now, what I don't want to do, what I don't want to do is to turn Daniel's prayer into a formula by which you can pray, pray this magic incantation and then get what you want. And I will say, although there's good money in doing that to a prayer from Scripture and writing a book telling everybody how to go about it, uh, that is not what we want to do. We want to learn for, from and be influenced by, but this is no formula. Verse 4. I prayed to the Lord my God and confessed, Lord, the great and awesome God who keeps his covenant of love with those who love him and, and keep his commandments, we have sinned and done wrong. We have been wicked and have rebelled. We have turned away from your commands and laws. We have not listened to your servants, the prophets, who spoke in your name to our kings and princes and our ancestors and to all the people of the land. And so the first thing we see, I think, in Daniel here is that he prays confessionally. He prays confessionally. Again, his prayer demonstrates that he really knows whose presence he is entering. He comes to God in a humble posture. In fact, I'm amazed how often when we see somebody in the scripture knowingly coming into the presence of the Lord, how often they are moved to confession and grief over their own sin. We see this even in the, in the people of Israel having come out of Egypt at the base of Mount Sinai, knowing that God has descended to meet with them at the top of the mountain, and they say to Moses, right, you go up, we're a scared you know, we'll stay right here. You go up. Where the prophet Isaiah says, woe to me. I'm ruined. I'm a man of unclean lips and I live among a people of unclean lips and my eyes have seen the King, the Lord Almighty. Or of the Apostle Peter in the boat after the first miraculous catch of fish, the one by which Jesus calls him into public ministry and service. And Peter, who realizes he's not just in the boat with a really, really good fisherman, but he realizes that Jesus is divine, he says what? Get away from me, because I'm a sinful man. Those that come into the presence of the Lord and know that whose presence they're in are moved. They're moved to confession. They're moved to a humble posture because of their sinful nature. They are not boastful, they're not brash, they're aware of indwelling sin, and they move quickly to confession. I had the privilege of going to Labrie, a study center started by um, Francis Schaefer. This one was back in Boston, and I had a chance to listen to Dick Kais there speak about humility, which was a, just a wonderful talk. It's um, still, still working on me, but he made this really simple and profound statement, nobody who walks with God is proud. You know, message over. I could just sit and linger, you know, with that for a while. Nobody who walks with God is proud. And I would say this, that you and I are, we have a greater 
privilege, a greater invitation to repentance and to confession because we know the gospel. So we're dealing with a man here who's dealing with his own sin and dealing with confession and dealing with repentance and trying to get right with the Lord, not having yet known of Jesus or of a Savior, right? While I was back in Boston on this same trip, this was, uh, I think it was in March, uh, a little more than a year ago, uh, I went to this Presbyterian church, don't, you know, get angry with me, I was at a Presbyterian church in uh, Cambridge, and the liturgy was really beautiful, and one of the things that was read in, in, in the liturgy was this, the gospel allows us to make confession and feel true sorrow and true remorse without guilt or shame. The gospel allows us to, to make confession and to feel true sorrow and true remorse, but not guilt or shame. Because the gospel places those things upon Jesus. The guilt and the shame and the consequences on him. We can be sorrow, sorry for sin, but we don't have to linger in its shame. Because our Lord bore that for us. But listen to the, even the limits of the confession as we see Daniel go on in his prayer and talk about shame. He says this in verse 7. Lord, you are righteous, but this day we are covered with shame. The people of Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem and all Israel, both near and far, and all the countries where you have scattered us because of our unfaithfulness to you. We and our kings, our princes, and our ancestors are covered with shame. Lord, because we have sinned against you. The Lord our God is merciful and forgiving even though we have rebelled against him. We have not obeyed the Lord our God or kept the laws he gave us through his servants, the prophets. All Israel has transgressed your law and turned away, refusing to obey you. Therefore, the curses and sworn judgments written in the law of Moses, the servant of God, have been poured out on us and because we have sinned against you. Observation I would make here is this that Daniel prays corporately. And this really stands out to me. You can see he prays in we fashion. We are covered with shame. We are we have sinned against you. We have not obeyed. And this is noteworthy, I think, because Daniel, as we've said, is one of the only men in Scripture of whom we know no wrongdoing. We know he's not perfect. I'm not saying that. We know he he's a sinner, just like every other person that has walked the earth. But if there is a righteous man in the scripture who generally walked with God and did well, he's at the top of the heap in terms of exemplary figures. And yet, for all of his righteousness and and his integrity, he doesn't set himself up above others or make himself immune from sin. And so he leads the people in a corporate confession. He's inclusive of himself. We might call this a priestly prayer. We. He brings himself along with the people before the Lord. He doesn't maintain a self-righteous air. Uh, Consider uh, the contrast of these two individuals who prayed in the New Testament in Luke chapter 18. You remember this story? Luke 18, 9. To some who were confident of their own righteousness and looked down on everyone else, Jesus told this parable. Two men went up to the temple to pray. One a Pharisee, the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood by himself and prayed, God, I thank you that I am not like the other people, robbers, evildoers, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week and give a tenth of all I get. 
But the tax collector stood at a distance. He would not even look up to heaven, but beat his breast and said, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. If there's a beautiful prayer in scripture, that's it. I tell you that this man, rather than the other, went home justified before God. For all those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. Just consider how often you and I come to prayer in a sort of leveraging fashion. Do you know what I mean? Maybe I'm the only one, but I'm going to start off here, and I hope to get some nods from you all. (laughs) But God, I've served you. I taught Sunday school, and the pastor's kids were in it, you know? It was brutal. (laughs) Or, answer my prayer, Lord, I give regularly. I really do. Okay, it's automated online, but, you know, I give regularly, Lord. Or, but God, hear me. I've grown so much in these past few years. And what's revealed in this kind of prayer is that we're expecting some kind of a quid pro quo from God. Right? We've done our bidding, or his bidding over here, and now he ought to do our bidding over here. We might not like to admit that we do this, but I think that we do. We try to leverage God with our actions. And uh, I just would bring us back to the words of Jerry Bridges in his book, Trusting God, where he says, everything this side of hell is grace. God doesn't owe us a thing. And we owe him everything. How foolish to try to leverage something out of the Lord. He tells us it is humility that pleases him. In Isaiah 66, 2, it may be the verse that I've quoted more than any other verse in my years of preaching here at the church. Has not my hand made all these things? And so they came into being, declares the Lord. These are the ones that I look on with favor. Those who are humble and contrite in spirit and who tremble at my word. This is who pleases the Lord. And so again, Daniel doesn't set himself up over these people or declare that he is sinless in their time of discipline, but in priestly, humble fashion, He makes their confession for them and he makes their confession his own. And it's really beautiful. Verse 11. All Israel has transgressed your law and turned away, refusing to obey you. Therefore, the curses and sworn judgments written in the law of Moses, the servant of God, have been poured out on us because we have sinned against you. You have fulfilled the words spoken against us and against our rulers by bringing on us great disaster. Under the whole heaven, nothing has ever been done like what has been done to Jerusalem. Just as it is written in the law of Moses, all this disaster has come on us, yet we have not sought the favor of the Lord our God by turning from our sin and giving attention to your truth. The Lord did not hesitate to bring the disaster on us, for the Lord our God is righteous in everything he does. Yet we have not obeyed him. I would just submit to you that that last line should create some tension for you and a little bit of discomfort. Consider the words. For the Lord our God is righteous in everything he does. Yet we've not obeyed him. That scale doesn't balance out, does it? We'll come back to that here. But what I would say is we see that Daniel prays here very considerately. I think there's a very beautiful balance that Daniel strikes in his prayer uh, between confession that seeks grace and forgiveness and yet at the same time a heart that is aware of God's righteousness and his, ju- his justice 
and seeks to please him through obedience. And I think we frequently, each of us, gets this wrong probably from one side or the other to the extreme, right? Either on the one hand, we're so lavish with the grace of God in others' lives or our own lives that we make obedience inconsequential. That is what Dietrich Bonhoeffer calls cheap grace. Or on the other hand, we're so performance-driven as though the mercy of God couldn't be achieved unless we earn it and we trample over the grace of God that's been poured out for sin and we call that legalism. And those two extreme failures are right there for each one of us and we could probably just go around the room and publicly say, yeah, I'm on this side. Yeah, I'm on this side. Right? If we're honest. In fact, I think it's fascinating that the, the, the drama that really is steadily unfolding throughout the scripture, especially in the Old Testament, surrounds this question about God's covenant to his people. His covenant given in Exodus 6, I will take you as my people and I will be your God. So that's what's set up for them. But the tension or the question that continues to develop around this covenant is, is it conditional or is it unconditional? Which is it? Because there are times in the text when it seems like it's one or the other. And I've pointed out this tension here in chapter 9, verse 14. Lord, you are righteous in all that you do, yet we've not obeyed you. How does that equation square? I love what Tim Keller has said in his book titled Preaching. Just so you know, I'm still working on my preaching by reading books regularly. And I've cited this one in your notes here. But he says this. This mystery is one of the main tensions that drives the dramatic action of the Bible. Since his people have forsaken him, will he forsake them? There seems to be no simple answer that will not compromise something we know of God. Will his holiness give way to his love so that he overlooks sin? Or will his love be overwhelmed by his holiness and justice so that the divine hammer falls? And then Jesus comes, and as we see him crying, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? We realize the answer. Is the covenant between God and his people conditional? Yes. Is the covenant between God and his people unconditional? Yes. Jesus comes and fulfills the conditions so that God can love us unconditionally. And so here, Daniel's presenting the tension and leaving it unresolved for us. You're righteous in all that you do, yet we have not obeyed you. And we know that we need Jesus to to come to square this equation, not only for us, but for all that went before us. And this is what Paul teaches in Romans 3. God presented Christ as a sacrifice of atonement through the shedding of his blood to be received by faith. He did this to demonstrate his righteousness Because in his forbearance, he left the sins committed beforehand unpunished. He did it to demonstrate his righteousness at the present time so as to be just and the one who justifies those who have faith in Jesus. And there is a balanced equation. Jesus, the X factor. And so this growing tension of how could a holy God pardon a sinful people is answered at the cross. And you know, I hope, I pray that you know, we lay hold of this by faith. We lay hold of this by faith. That God can maintain his righteousness and you can still be a sinner, but a forgiven sinner and that you lay hold of redemption that is through Jesus Christ and you lay hold of it by faith. Verse 15. Now Lord our God who 
brought your people out of Egypt with a mighty hand and who made for yourself a name that endures to this day. We have sinned. We have done wrong. Lord, in keeping with all of your righteous acts, turn away your anger and your wrath from Jerusalem, your city, your holy hill. Our sins and the iniquities of our ancestors have made Jerusalem and your people an object of scorns to all those around us. Now our God, hear the prayers and petitions of your servants. For your sake, Lord, look with favor on your desolate sanctuary. Give ear, our God, and hear. Open your eyes and see the desolation of the city that bears your name. We do not make requests of you because we are righteous, but because of your great mercy. Lord, listen. Lord, forgive. Lord, hear and act. For your sake, my God, do not delay, because your city and your people bear your name. I just ask you a question that you already know the answer to. Whose name was important to Daniel in this prayer? <laughs> this is a Godward prayer. It is God-centered. As I've said, it, I've said it this way, that Daniel prays conspicuously. His concern is for, the name of God, uh, the, is for the name of God above and beyond his own personal requests. He is concerned for the Lord's name. Um, back in high school, I'm going to close this out with a story here. I, had a, uh, I played a lot of sports in high school. One of them that I played was basketball. You're looking at me going, really, basketball? Uh, I did. And um, I was a good player on a good team, but not a great player. Um, and my junior year, we were playing an away game, and um, I was playing the point guard position, and uh, I was playing really well. I was having a good game. And um, I had about 15 points kind of coming close to the end of the game. I had made three consecutive three-pointers. I don't think I'd missed a shot in the game. That's a really good game for me. And, uh, and so I was feeling really good about things, and I had... Um, our team really playing well together on balance. Their team was off balance. And, um, and I was sort of becoming sort of the point of our offense. And so the defense of the other team started to focus on me. And it, again, it was just the best game I'd ever had. I've had plenty of bad ones. But, um, and I could see that they were shifting their focus defensively on me. And so I even used that to, their, to my advantage. And so when the defense was coming, pump faked. And they came over and they fouled me, got a shot off, missed, but I was going to the free throw line. And so I was going to the, we had basically made up a, a deficit here. We were coming to the end. I had a chance going to the free throw line to put us ahead. So we were, we were down one and I had two free throws. And, um, and I remember that once I got fouled and sort of the intensity of the game had been building, that one of my teammates, Diego Rasa, very popular kid, he was a senior, very popular kid, Samoan guy, just built very athletic, great player, um, incredibly wealthy. I don't know why I'm telling you this, but he drove a um, Cadillac Alante, a red Cadillac Alante convertible, which was a new car, to, to school. That was his daily driver. Okay, so these are some of the kids I went to school with. So Diego, this is him, he comes over to me and he bumps chest with me and he grabs my jersey and he says, you're going to make these free throws and we're going to win the game and you're going to make a name for yourself. And I remember thinking, well, it's all been laid out before me, hasn't it? <laughs> this is all I need to do. I mean, you know, my high school legendary status will be set. A name for myself. That would be wonderful. And just with two free throws, you know, this is great. And uh, so I stepped up to the free throw line, took my normal spin, three bounces, spin, 
set in, and I took my first free throw, missed, <laughs> just bricked it. And, uh, and then I went up to take the next one, and I made it. I tied the game, and long story short, we went on to win the game. I don't even remember how. I was too busy sulking over my missed free throw and the fact that I had missed the opportunity to make a name for myself. I had visions in my mind of driving with Diego in his Cadillac, you know. <laughs> hey, buddy. It's you and me, boss of the school, right? And that didn't happen. And I didn't go on to the NBA, which probably has only to do with that single free throw, right? <laughs> um, but how often do you and I come to prayer with our primary concern about our own name, right? Our own kingdom, our own will, our own desires, our own list of what it is that we want as we see that it ought to be. You'll remember how Jesus taught his disciples to pray, Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done. Prayer is a recalibrating thing where we bring ourselves before Almighty God and say, change me and my requests and change my heart and my focus to long for what you long for and I will be concerted in advocating for your name and for your kingdom. Prayer is tuning our instrument to the heart of the Lord. And Daniel here gets this even before he is privileged to hear the teachings of Jesus. Think of how much more privilege you and I have, having seen our Lord and Savior, having received his free gift of salvation, having seen and heard his teachings. We have every reason to pray like a boss because we've learned from the boss. Let's pray now. Lord, it's a privilege to see a man like Daniel, a man who was righteous and who had integrity and yet with all of that was humble. And he was your servant. We thank you for what we learned from him, not only in all of the visions and the revelation given through the book, but what we learned from him here in his prayer. In this humble fashion, he comes with confession. He comes praying for your name. He comes praying confessionally. Lord, lead us to pray similarly. Help us to be changed as we come to you in prayer. We pray only because Jesus makes it possible. We pray in his name and for his kingdom. Amen.